following message is from Narrative Church, a Lutheran church located in Williamson County, Texas. For more information, go to www.narrative.church. We're going to be talking about this story in Esther. Um, It is one of those stories that kind of stands out a little bit in Scripture because it seems a little bit separate from everything. There are some stories we run into in Scripture that seem to just line up perfectly, but then we get some that kind of step out a little bit, and we see uh, you know, how things are a little bit different. And so we get this point where the Jewish people, um, at least a part of them, have been in exile and taken captive in Susa, which is different than the um, captives we saw last week in um, Persia under Nebuchadnezzar. It's, it's subtleties, right? But we see this same theme of people pulled out of space. And the story of Esther is one that is really easy to make fun and friendly. Until you slow down and go, oh, there's a lot of like murdering and death in this story. There's a lot of, um, you know, what happens to Haman? And they said it very nicely here where it's like, and the king told him he was going to be killed. Quick, next scene, right? If you want, just read through Esther this afternoon and see what really happens to Haman. It is just some beautiful, beautiful justice. But what we see oftentimes, and I know as I've preached on Esther before, I've focused in on these verses that it talks for such a time as this. And in fact, I know we've gone through Esther before here at Narrative, and I've focused on for such a time as this, that we can all look and say, what is God at work doing in our lives that we could say for such a time as this, right? Because you have the story, first you have like a real messed up uh, marital issue happening, right? Ha- doing premarital counseling for folks who are getting married, like the first thing I'd probably say to them is be like, yeah, so husband... Um, don't make it like a death penalty if your wife shows up like unbeknownst to you in a room. You know, it's a weird thing to do that here's Esther worried to go talk to her husband because, you know, she might die. Okay, that's weird. And you even go before that, that how does Esther get married to the king? Well, it's basically a beauty pageant because the king gets tired of his first wife and he goes, okay, you're gone. Who's next? And he throws a beauty pageant, because that seems healthy. And so we actually see part of this story is that we see that God is going to work through situations, circumstances, and people that don't always seem like he would be the situations, circumstances, and people that he'd be working through. You get this whole story of Mordecai who ends up saving the king who's hated by Haman, and Haman decides not just to try and take out Mordecai, but he wants to go scorched earth and take out all of his people. And you see the response to that from Mordecai is to say, listen, we've got to pray. Esther, you need to go to the king and bring our plight before the king. And Esther struggles with it, and his response is that that verse of, for such a time as this, which is an incredible verse. And then we see what happens through the rest of the story where Esther does go and she says, if I perish, I perish. 
the bravery she shows to just say, if I die, then that's, that's what happens. She goes to the king, wines and dines him and Haman, says, let's do it again. And the next night says, here's what's happening. And this actually builds up um, the uh, you know, destruction of Haman. And then what happens is they can't get rid of the law, which doesn't make sense to me. Like, you're the king, just, you know, take care of it. But there's something in there. So instead of getting rid of the law, they say the Jewish people can defend themselves. That when people show up to destroy them, they can defend themselves. And they actually do that and defend themselves with bravery and honor, so much so that the people leave them alone. And this becomes the Jewish holiday of Purim. This salvation in the midst of a foreign country. And we could talk about all of those things and how God works to save His remnant for the purpose of the Christ who is to come. We can talk about all those things, but today what I kind of want to talk about is the fact that as you read this book, there's something missing. As you read the book of Esther, if you go through the whole thing, there's something and someone specifically very important who is missing. Well, 16, but still in Sunday school. Love it. Thanks, Seth. His answer was Jesus, which is like close. Yes. God is missing in the story. That if you go through this whole book, the mention of Him isn't found. That here we have an entire story about the salvation of of his people from death and destruction, and not once is he found. So what does that mean? Does that mean God is absent? That he goes, listen, okay, folks who have been exiled to Babylon, you're fine, but those in Susa, ooh, ooh, I've been to Susa, Yelp reviews, not great. I just don't want to show up there, right? You know, so here's God, why is he absent? You see what I, I, I stumbled on that as I was, prepping this week, I was like, that is such a strange thing that as we read Scripture, it is bathed in who God is. He's showing up all the time. In fact, there are people going, God, I wish you hadn't showed up here, right? But He's everywhere. So what does it mean when we encounter a book of Scripture and here is God and and we don't see Him named? Is He truly absent? But I want to look at our verses today, that 4, 10 through 17. And there's this process that happens. Because what Mordecai does is he encourages Esther. He says, be brave. Do the brave thing for such a time as this. Esther hears it, digests it, and says, I'm going to do it. And in fact, let's fast for three days together. All my people are going to fast. Get all of the Jewish people to fast. We'll do that together. And then she ends by saying, and if I perish, I perish. And she goes and does that. What I think is fascinating about this story is that even with the absence of the mention of God, it is drenched in who He is. That as Mordecai tells her and says, no, you for such a time as this, what is he talking about? He's not saying, by some random chance, here you are. No, he's saying, listen, God has a plan. And who are you to know that all of this didn't happen so you would be here when the time came? What if you are God's plan? 
And then we get to her response when she says, let's fast together three days. I don't know about all of you. Growing in my prayer life, continuing to follow the Lord, if you ask me to fast for three days, don't look like a guy who's going to fast for three days. But here is this ultimate moment, and she's saying, let's go to the Lord with this depth of prayer that says we're going to fast. And the purpose of fasting is not that it says, oh, God likes some prayers, but when you're not eating food, He likes those prayers more. What fasting is, is it's a discipline for the human heart that says, every time I think about that daily bread that I need, every time I slow down, that I would be going to get food, in that moment I pray. When I feel those hunger pains, I say, instead, I'm going to trust the Lord for my providence, so I will go to Him. Fasting may seem like this strange and thing, like almost supernatural, but it's a very simple thing. We are a people built of spirit and physicality. We cannot separate those two things. When God creates, He pulls dirt and breathes spirit into it and says it is good. And so too for us, we are spirit and we are body together. And so when we fast in that way, it's about saying, I'm going to give up these physical things to be reminded of who God is. So Esther's response isn't, let's just stop and pray. She says, no, call everyone to fast. Let everyone know. And it's not like there's some giant group me thread that all the Jewish people at that point in Susa are on, where it's like, you know, Mordecai's there going, let's all fast together, right? No, like, It is you, tell this family, you go. Like, it is a production. So Esther looks and says, listen, this is such a big deal. And the Lord is so in it. Tell the people, take it out. Send writers, declare it in the neighborhoods. That her first inclination, when she realizes this could be the plan of God, is to turn to Him. It isn't to focus on herself, it is to say, pray for me and for this situation. And then finally, we have this moment where the king's heart has slowly been softened. Right? She could roll in and he could declare her death, but instead he is overjoyed to see his wife, as he should be. But that was the big question mark. And so his heart is made soft. They have this meal. And then he goes and says, you know, as every king does, read to me from my memoirs, right? Like here he is resting and goes, I need a bedtime story. Read about me, right? And so they're reading from his own history. And I don't know about you, but if someone saved my life, not forgetting about that. But here is this king so absorbed in himself that as he is being written, he goes, oh yes, Mordecai, that man who saved my life, right? 
He goes, well, let's, let's celebrate him. So the Lord softens his heart a little more so that when Esther the next night comes before them and he says, well, what is your request? And she says, mine and Mordecai's people are to be murdered. That the king's heart has been turned towards them. That he is already feeling empathy and love for those people. So even though we don't see that mention, that clear-cut essence of God right there on the page, there He is working through the whole thing. It's His plan. It's His people turning to Him. And it's His work. There will be times in your life where you look around and you say, Lord, where are You? There will be those fears and anxieties that are weighing on you and you will say, Lord, where have you gone? I don't see the mention of you. I don't outright see you. What is happening? And so my prayer for you would be this, that you would trust that when he says he will work everything together for your good, that he means it. And that maybe your idea of your good and his idea of your good are very different. Because you can't tell me that that fear that Esther felt of going before the king to death was lessened all of a sudden because of what Mordecai said to her. I don't know if her fear was lessened. I think her trust in God probably grew to overcome that fear. So may you trust not the simple phrase of, well, God has a plan for your life, but instead to look and to say, the king of the universe, the one who created something out of nothing, so deeply loves you that he would send his own son for you that maybe he has more planned for you than for everything to go badly. Or maybe his plan for you is that when things go badly, he will still be there. May you be so drenched in the Word of the Lord, that when the time comes, when you see that for such a time as this is encountered upon your life, that you would look and you would say, let's fast together. Let's turn to the Lord. Send out the writers. Bring in the brothers and sisters of Christ to pray with me and over me. And may we fast together, not because it's some magic spell to change God's heart, but because we need to return to Him. And may you pray that in every situation, the hearts of those around you may be softened for the Lord. I don't know if you've turned on any form of screen this week, but everyone hates each other. It doesn't matter nuanced arguments. It doesn't matter discussions. Everyone is living in a place of fear. And I would be lying if I didn't say I've experienced some of that myself. But your enemy is not of this world. Whether you're talking about politics or abortion 
or schools or lifestyles or anything in between. There is plenty in this world that makes it feel like everything is going out of control. But Jesus' promise to us is that He says, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our goal is not to transform the world. That lives in Him. Our goal is that He gives us two things. Love God and love others. And it's really hard to love God and love others when we view everyone as someone with a hard heart towards us. That doesn't make it easier, and it doesn't mean that everyone's heart is going to soften. It doesn't mean that everyone will act as the king acted. There will be people in this world who have turned from the truth to their own ways. But what if we as a people started playing for softer hearts so that we can declare the love of a Savior that people so desperately need? What if our love for others was less about saying, we're going to change you, and more about saying, you're my neighbor, and the Lord said I had to. So I love you. I care for you. I talked with you a little bit about Paul Corabundi earlier this morning. My dad shared a story with me this week that he heard from Paul. So Paul had actually been a part of a church in India before he came here. And as they had started their church, it was small and they were struggling to grow. Well, in the area they were in, there was a Hindu political official who was kind of the guy in the area. And he came to them. They were meeting in a house. and He said, you can't meet here. And in that part of India, whatever that guy says is the law. So they met wherever they could. But this man told them, you cannot meet here. Well, he got very sick. And so Paul brought together his small church and they went to the hospital and they prayed for this man. They walked through a sea of Hindu people who were outside bringing sacrifices to altars for this man. And they prayed for him. Nothing happened. This man went home, still ill, still needing healing. They said, can we come pray for you in your home? He said, why not? They came and prayed for this man, and he started feeling better. And you know who started coming to their church? The Hindu official who had told them they could not meet for worship. You see, the radical work of Jesus on the cross is that the love for our enemies trumps everything else. You can't tell me that the king of Susa was not an enemy to the people of God. But God worked to soften his heart. And so my prayer for you is whoever you view as enemies, pray to the Lord that he would soften their hearts. Because the goal is not that they would all die in fire, but that one day they would come to know the love of the Lord. The book of Esther tells us so many things, but I think what it speaks loudest is what is absent, that God is present even 
when He doesn't show up like we would expect. So my encouragement to you is to take heart. The Lord is working in your life and He is working your life for good. When the times come, call out for prayer. Bring together the church. Listen, if any of you call and say, hey, on Sunday, I need prayer. We're doing it. Briley asked me this week, I'm going to college. Can you pray over me? We're going to do it together today. Bring the church together. We're here for this. And finally, the hardest piece. Lord, may the enemy's hearts become softened towards you. Because listen, I get it. I say, I say all this, but I know the people in my life that I go, ooh, that's my enemy. Those are the people I don't like. And the funny thing is that when the Lord starts softening the hearts of our enemies, He often does it by breaking our hard hearts first. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we give You thanks that even when we don't see it, You are at work. That You've never stopped loving us. Lord, may we recognize Your hand in our lives. Lord, may we look and bring together the church in prayer when we are in need. Lord, may we be a people that pray for our enemies, not for their demise, but for their well-being. That the hearts of those who we would see and fear would be softened for You. Lord, we pray all these things in Your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.